welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Now, with those words, he's emphasizing that the choice to die was not made by another man. His life was taken from him, and that was not the choice of another man. He laid down his own life, and it was his choice and his alone. The Jews did not make that choice to take his life from him. He alone made that choice to lay down his life. Pilate did not make that choice to take his life from him. He alone made that choice to lay down his life. And so these verses are all about the choice that he made. Verse We saw number one, the father was focused on the choice with the words in verse 15, the father knoweth me. Number two, the choice the father focused on was to lay down his life. Well, again, with verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Number three, there was an imperative that he felt that drove him to make his choice. Verse 16, I must bring, them I must bring. Number four, he saw the result of his choice, and that's what he kept in front of him. In verse 16, they shall hear my voice. And he saw that the father was thrilled, loved him for his choice that he made, a choice that would be celebrated for all of eternity. In verse 17, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life. And he emphasized in verse 16, it's all about his choice and his alone. No one else made that choice for him. No one pushed him, pressured him, or coerced him to make that choice. He did it in verse 18. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So what we see in uh, Genesis 15:1 is the great choice. Here we go. It's the great choice. It was a tremendous choice. It was this choice to lay down his life when he said, I am making myself your shield, Abraham. I am thy shield. Now, it didn't have to be the shield instead of Abraham to take the wounding for Abraham's transgressions, but he chose to. He didn't have to be the shield instead of Abraham that would be bruised for Abraham's iniquities, but he chose to. It was a tremendous choice that he made to make himself our exceeding great treasure, to make himself our inheritance. The whole subject we're talking about here in Genesis 15, as Abraham is bringing out, is the inheritance. Who's going to inherit the inheritance? And it was a tremendous choice that he made to make himself our inheritance expressed in the exceeding great reward. And he didn't have to open his great big heart of love to us, for us to know him, for him to live within us, to be our great treasure, but he chose to. And that treasure of knowing him was what David so much appreciated when he wrote in Psalm 119.57, Thou art my portion, O Lord. And in Psalm 42.1, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Now, in verse 2, we see Abraham, back in Genesis 15, in verse 2, we see that Abraham is responding to God by saying, in verse 2 through 3, And Abraham said, Lord God, What would thou give me, seeing I go childless? Now, in Abraham's response to God, there's a tremendous transformation which is taking place. I'll ask you a very simple question and tell you that there's no catchy thing so you can get it easily. What new name is is there here for God in verse 2? 
It's an easy question. What new name is there for God in the Bible in verse 2? It's not God. (laughs) It's a new name for God. Lord, that's it. It's Lord. Very good. Okay. (laughs) I just do that so I make sure that you're with me. (laughs) I hope. Anyway. So uh, he's used a new name for God here. And that word has never been used before in the Bible. It's the word Lord. This is the first time we want to thank somebody for using the word Lord. You thank Abraham. So when you get to heaven, you thank Abraham. Because this word Lord, which is Adonai, has never been used before. God did not reveal this name. But this was Abraham, who of his own will, he decided that he was going to call God something that God has never been called before, which is Adonai. Before Abraham, no. No one ever called God by the name Adonai. This is the first, Abraham is the first one to use that. But this represents a great transformation that has happened in Abraham. The word Adonai comes from the word Adon, means Lord. The word Adonai means my Lord. And so Abraham is the first person in the Bible to call God my Lord. And that's a very, very significant thing because Adonai is the equivalent of saying my personal Lord. You know the phrase, my personal Lord and Savior? This is the phrase, my personal Lord. And it was a great turning point for Abraham. Here was Abraham, a man who was afraid for his own protection, a man who was afraid for his own provision. And God responds to Abraham in a very personal way by telling him that he has decided to become Abraham's personal shield. He has decided to become Abraham's personal reward. And Abraham then responds with Adonai by saying to God, if you are my personal shield and if you are my personal reward, then you are my personal Lord. And Adonai, he says, Adonai, my personal Lord. So when Abraham uses this word Adonai, he meant it. It wasn't just a glib thing that he did. He he wasn't thinking. It was very, very meaningful for him. And it came in response to all this personal stuff, personal shield, personal reward. Fine, my personal Lord. And so God had told Abraham he is making him his personal shield. He's going to make him his personal reward. And then Abraham responds back and says, since we're on the subject of personal, you are my personal Lord. And that's what he's saying here. And so it's a response back by Abraham. And Abraham is saying, I understand all the choices that you've made. I understand what you've done for me. I understand how you've made yourself my personal savior by being my shield. I understand how you've made yourself my personal reward, exceeding great reward. So now I'm going to make you my personal Lord. And God did not have to make himself, as we've said, God's personal shield. That was his choice. And God did not have to make himself Abraham's personal shield. He did not have to make himself Abraham's personal reward. He didn't have to do that. But he did that because of his choice. And God chose that. God chose to make himself Abraham's personal shield and Abraham's personal reward. And so then Abraham says, well, then I have a choice too. And I'm going to personally choose without coercion, without being persuaded, without being pushed into it, I'm going to personally choose to make you my personal Lord. Very significant when Abraham said to God, Adonai, that was Abraham saying to God, I am choosing, I am making, as you did, I am making you my personal Lord. It should be that way with everyone, should be. No one should glibly use the term Lord with the Lord Jesus Christ unless they have made that same all-important decision that Abraham made, that they've seen what God has done for them. And in response out of the heart, they say, I make you my personal Lord as Abraham did. It's interesting. I find the lost will call him Jesus, 
and they'll call him Christ, and they'll call him Jesus Christ, but they don't like to call him the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Because calling him Lord, as in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a title, and it's good they don't feel comfortable with that. Because doing that really should be reserved, as it was how Abraham used it, for those who have made this choice to make him their personal Lord. But... Unfortunately, some people use the term Lord as in personal Lord, as in Adonai, and they really haven't made God their personal Lord. They just say it, and that's a tragedy. The Bible says that is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Why? Because they think that because they call the Lord Adonai or my personal Lord that they're going to get to heaven. But they're wrong if they haven't really made him their personal Lord and have followed him and obeyed him and heard his voice because in the end they end up in hell. And that's a tragedy that was described by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, when he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, he that really has made me their personal Lord. Now, you know, he wasn't speaking Greek, even though it was written in Greek, he was speaking Hebrew. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, not everyone that saith unto me, Adonai, Adonai, as Abraham did, shall enter into heaven. Not everyone that says to me, my personal Lord, my personal Lord, that says, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, but he that really has made him Adonai, he that really has made him my personal Lord. Because he said then in verse 22 of Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Adonai, Adonai, only say it, Adonai, Adonai, my personal Lord, my personal Lord, have I not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have we not cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So just to call him Adonai, just to say he's my Lord, just to say he's my personal Lord, that's not enough to get into heaven because a person really has to make him the Lord Jesus Christ, their Adonai, their personal God, their personal Lord, as Abraham did. Lord, supreme authority over me personal. I put myself under your authority. All of that is encapsulated in the term Adonai or personal Lord. And when they do not make him their personal Lord and do all kinds of good works, thinking that by them they can buy their way into heaven without making him their Adonai or personal Lord, then they'll hear the most shocking, unimaginable words that's ever been spoken. I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Why? They never made him their real Adonai. They never made him their personal Lord of their lives. So the term that Abraham uses here is very important. It's very significant. But then he has a question in Genesis 15 too. And he says, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So he first of all says the word what. All right, since we're talking about reward, and we're referring to an heir here, he says what. But God has just told him, it's not about what, it's about who. (laughs) He said to him, I. And the treasure is not a what, the treasure is a who. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a what, he's a who. And people refer to Christianity as an it. It's not an it, it's a who. Because Christianity is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the exceeding great reward was a person. But Abraham says to God, what wilt thou give me? There's something, when you read this, we have to see this as something very, very human. 
Very, very human in Abraham's response here, in, in his question. And to understand this, we need to remember that God had said to Abraham that the reward, he had mentioned the reward, his exceeding great reward. So the natural question in Abraham's heart is that who's going to inherit this reward? Speaking of rewards, don't see this as Abraham murmuring against God. He's not murmuring against God like Israel did in the wilderness. But it's been a long time. It's been a very long time since God has first promised to Abraham. Maybe, I don't know, 25 years, something like that. A very long time since God has promised to Abraham he's going to have a son, and no son has come. And his relatives are having sons, and they're having children. And Abraham and Sarah just continue to go to the baby showers, (laughs) or whatever they do. They go to the baby showers and say, good for you. And everybody says, sorry for you. And he's getting old, and he's feeling desperate. And all Abraham has to do is to hold on for all those long years of no child. And he always got is the promise of God. And his frustration is breaking through now. And his frustration of, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And this is an interim time for Abraham. It's the interim time between the promise and between the realization of the time of promise. It's a time of trial. And all of our lives can be defined by what we do during the interim time. It's real easy to walk outside and say, beautiful day, wonderful sunshine, I believe in God. It's totally different to walk outside when there's a storm blowing your house away and say, I believe in God and I love God. Because our lives are made up of interim times when our confidence in God is put to the test as it was in Abraham's case here. So Abraham's question, what wilt thou give me seeing I go childless, shows how hard it was for Abraham. And on the surface, it looks like Abraham is just asking God for some clarification. God, did you mean that Eliezer was going to be my heir? But Abraham is asking for more than clarification. Abraham is letting out a cry of frustration to God. And so notice in verse 2, where Abraham uses the word seeing, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and what as if to say, Lord, can't you see? I'm going childless here. Let's get a little tension over here, if you don't mind, Lord. So verse 3 is really a repeat, it's a repetition of the same thing that Abraham has said in verse 2. That's what you do when you get frustrated, you just say it again. I'm good at that. My wife reminds me. Just repeating it, because this issue of the infertility was heavy, and it weighed heavy on Abraham. And Abraham is using these words, give. What wilt thou give me? Thou hast given me no seed. God has just told Abraham in verse 1 that God is giving to Abraham an exceeding great reward, and Abraham wants to direct his eyes on, yeah, well, I'm childless. And I could use a little reward in this direction. We can feel this intense frustration that Abraham has. Because according to Hammurabi Code again, if there's no son, then the most esteemed servant in the house, he becomes the heir. And that would have been Eliezer, who evidently had been born in Abraham's house and whose parents evidently were from Damascus. So Abraham wants to direct God's eyes to the fact that Abraham had no heir, that Eliezer was from the parent who had parents from Damascus and he was a steward of the house. And so was Eliezer to be the heir? Is that what it was all about? Abraham was seeking from God. Was this what you meant? When you said that I would have an heir, that it was going to be this Eliezer of Damascus, did God just say Abraham would have a son with Sarah, and that son would be Abraham's heir, but God really meant that Abraham would not really have a son, but that Eliezer of Damascus was going to be the heir? Did God mean what he said, or did God really not mean what he said? And Abraham wasn't being rebellious here in questioning God. Abraham was just doing what David did in Psalm 142 too. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him my trouble. 
So that's what Abraham is doing here. He's pouring out his complaint before God. He's showing God his trouble. And Abraham, with the words of David, he's just pouring out his complaint. You can picture it. It's like he's pouring it out like a cup. And we can picture the frustration of this infertility in Abraham's life. It's building, and the cup is getting higher and higher, like a glass there, a glass, getting higher and higher. As the years drawn on, it keeps getting higher and higher. The frustration is building and building, and finally Abraham gets alone with God, and he takes the glass full of complaint, and he pours it out to God. He said, I poured out my complaint before God. And when we're frustrated, we feel like we're at the breaking point because our cup has been filling up and filling up and filling up with frustration. We're to not pour it out before men, like our spouses or women or others, but we're to get along with God and do what what David says, pour out my complaint before God. And we're to do what Abraham did. I show him my trouble, like Hezekiah. He spread out this whole matter before the Lord when they was about to be destroyed in Jerusalem. What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? I showed him my trouble, Psalm 142.2. And what happens during those times of trouble? Like Abraham, we think God is not giving, but like Abraham, God is actually giving the greatest treasure to us through this trouble because God can only be discovered through trouble. And if there's no trouble in our lives, we don't go to God. That's the way we are. But trouble drives us to God, as it did for Abraham. And then we, along with Abraham, find God. Oh, he's my exceeding great reward. Oh, if the trouble didn't come, I wouldn't have found him as the exceeding great reward. He made himself that way to be. So in this trouble, Abraham has turned his whole heart to God. And in this great frustration, Abraham has asked God for clarification about Eliezer. And in verse 4, God responds by saying, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. So what we see here is God answers Abraham directly when he says, this is not going to be your heir. So God clarifies what he meant when he told Abraham, Genesis 12, 2, I will make of thee a great nation. Genesis 13, 16, I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. So he clarifies to Abraham that he's to be taken literally, not figuratively. When God says to Abraham, of thee, he meant of you, of your seed, your seed. God should never be taken figuratively. God should always be taken literally. There is a literal heaven that he spoke of, a literal hell that he spoke of. There is a literal Lamb's book of life from Revelation 20. And so he clarifies this. And then he says he brings them forth abroad in verse 5, and he causes them to look up and look toward heaven and tell the stars, and if he's not able to number them. And he says, you see all those stars up there, Abraham? He says, if you can count them, go ahead, start counting because that's going to be like your seed. And so he does that. And then it says that Abraham made this great decision in verse 6, a decision he had to make. Is he going to believe what God said? And this didn't come easy for Abraham. This was a process. First, Abraham, in processing what God said, he first had to say, you know, I was wrong about Eliezer. He's not going to be my heir. It looked like Eliezer was going to be my heir because it looks like Sarah and I are too old to have children. But God has just clarified to me, nope, it's not Eliezer. God has just told me from my body, from my body. And now I've got to believe God. Turn to this in Romans 4, because this is all commented on verses in Romans 4, verses 17 through 22, where we see a great process that's taking place here. Because it says here in Romans 4, 17, 
as it is written, I've made thee a father of many nations. This is the deception we're in right now. Before him whom he believed, and even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. This shows a big process here. Phase one of the process was there was the screaming obvious. The obvious was screaming at Abraham. Abraham, you're too old to have a baby. Abraham, Sarah's womb is dead. There's no life gonna come from that womb. Abraham, God is calling something to happen from nothing. That's against science. Abraham, you and Sarah, you're so old, you're nearly dead. And God is saying to you that you're gonna have a baby? That's like saying life is gonna come out of the dead. Impossible. There's no physical basis for you and Sarah to have a child. It's hopeless. And the screaming obvious in verse 17, the words, the dead, is screaming at Abraham. You can't possibly believe God. Verse 17, the things which be not, is screaming at Abraham. You can't possibly believe God. Verse 18, against hope, was screaming at Abraham. You can't possibly believe in God. In verse 19, his own body, now dead, was screaming at Abraham. You can't possibly believe God. Verse 19, the deadness of Sarah's womb was screaming at Abraham. You can't possibly believe God. And then the second phase, when Abraham had to take his stand against all those screams of you can't possibly believe God, and Abraham takes his first step, which was to not listen to those screams of the obvious. Abraham had to hang up the phone of all those screams you can't possibly hear. So that comes, we see that second phase in verse 19. He considered not, verse 19, neither yet, verse 20. He staggered not. They hung up the phone, and instead, the third phase, he picks up the other line with God, and it says in verse 17, before him whom he believed, verse 18, against hope he believed in hope. In verse 19, being not weak in faith. Verse 20, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. In verse 21, he was fully, being fully persuaded. And so, by the way, when it says in verse 20, he gave glory to God, that's the greatest step of faith. Because to give glory to God in the face of frustrations when it looks like this is impossible, that's faith. To praise God in the face when it looks like there's no way this is going to work out good. And we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. There he is on the cross. It looks like an impossible situation. He's just been forsaken by God. And he's cried out in Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the shock of it all comes through. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? And on the cross, he feels the frustration. He feels the pain of having been forsaken by God. And he cries out from the deep pain in his soul, oh, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his forsaken state, he knows he's not being heard. And he cries out in Psalm 22, 2, oh, my God, I cry in the daytime and in the night but thou hearest not, and in the night season I'm not silent. So it looks like an impossible situation for him. It's just like Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ makes a decision in that impossible situation, verse 3 of Psalm 22, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. In the face of the screaming obvious, you can't believe God, you've been forsaken, he decides to praise God, and he says, O God, thou art holy. God, you're beautiful in your holiness. 
Oh, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, you are beautiful, pavilioned with praises, a wreath of praises around your head. God saw this in the life of Abraham. Then came in Romans 4.13, which is the whole point of what Romans 4 is about. He says, for the promise that he should be the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. A new righteousness. Now, a righteousness of faith. A new righteousness is revealed to us, which is a righteousness of faith, which shows us this is not a righteousness of works. This is a righteousness of hanging up the phone on the screaming obvious of you can't possibly believe God and picking up the phone and saying, I believe God and standing before God. And when God says that, he looks down and he says, righteous, as he did with Abraham. Write down righteousness on his account. It's a righteousness of faith. That'll be what we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God of righteousness who brings us, Lord, these promises that we can believe and we can have when we take our stand, that righteousness of faith that Abraham, our father, showed us how to do. Thank you for hearing us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor by going to our online bookstore and our website located at friendshipwithgod.org. What are you doing this Thursday? Come to the Creation Earth History Museum in Santee, California at 6.30 p.m. for our Thursday night Bible study and fellowship. Our Bible study happens every Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. This Thursday, we'll study the truth of the Bible, science, and compare that to the life and work of Charles Darwin. We'll have expert guest speakers from the Southern California Seminary with Dr. John Baumgartner and Dr. Christopher Cohn and Dr. Kenneth Cumming, who will join our Creation and Earth History Museum staff as we study the truth of the Bible, science, and compare that to the life and work of Charles Darwin. Bring an atheist or unbeliever to the Bible study and fellowship and join us this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California, off Woodside Avenue North. Call us for more information, 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or go online to creationsd.org. That's creationsd.org, creationsd.org.